0: Well, this morning I would like to speak to you from the book of Proverbs on the topic of conflict. But by conflict, I'm not talking about everyday disagreements. In this sermon, I'm not talking about the sort of healthy conflict that makes a community stronger when differing opinions and personalities are heard and considered such that relationships are stronger and decisions are the best they can be. No, this morning I'm talking about conflict of the messiest variety, the sort of conflict that looks like knock down, drag them out fights that turn people into enemies of one another. The book of Proverbs refers to these sorts of situations with the word strife. I'm talking about situations where your hallmates or your coworkers find every opportunity to ridicule your Christian faith and try to make you angry so you will slip up in front of them. I'm talking about those classmates or neighbors who act respectfully in public, but in private, their mouths pour forth repulsive profanity and epithets in your direction. I'm talking about those extended family members who point out your every flaw, who claim to know you, but they really don't, and they wield their expectations and their gossip like hot pokers to manipulate you into doing what they want you to do. Sometimes Christians think God wants them to become punching bags in such situations. And at other times, Christians harden themselves to the point of arrogance and condescension toward their opponents. But what does it mean to fight like a Christian in such situations? Because make no mistake, enemies are real. And God wants his people not to fall before their enemies, but to overcome their enemies. And the book of Proverbs teaches that the wise overcome their enemies not by winning, but by dying. That's where we're heading this morning. The wise overcome their enemies, not by winning, but by dying. So what does it mean to fight like a Christian? The first thing you can see on your outline is that the book of Proverbs wants us to avoid the things that cause strife. Avoid the causes of strife. If you can avoid strife, your best bet is to do so. Don't run straight into it if you don't need to. Look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. You See, sometimes we get this crazy idea that protecting one's honor means not turning aside from any threat or fight and to back down from a fight is seen as cowardly but friends such notions of honor are completely contrary to the lord's definition of honor the world's definition of honor is nothing more than a matter of schoolyard foolishness The Lord values and honors the person who is mature enough to keep aloof from strife, to stay away from it whenever possible. Those who enjoy quarrels, who initiate quarrels, and who perpetuate quarrels are fools. They are after their own self-respect, their self-image, and they are therefore to be avoided whenever possible even though it is really hard to do so. And it may feel like you are giving up a lot to keep your distance from such strife. It may even feel like dying. Now, there is a time and a place for protecting the innocent and standing up for the rights of the oppressed, even if it means entering into a fight. Look at chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. If you faint... In the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So the Lord certainly calls his people to fight at the right time and for the right reasons. And those reasons are when the good and safety of others is, are at stake. And it's not simply to defend one's own honor. Yet it is wise to be aware of those situations when strife is likely to break out And if the harm to the innocent is not at stake, we want, whenever possible, to avoid them. And so how do we recognize those times? When are those times when strife is likely to break out? What are some potential causes for strife that we ought to avoid? Some of these things that I'll list here might be things to watch for in other people. And perhaps some of these things are things that we ought to avoid within ourselves. The first thing is to simply watch out for those with a history of quarreling. Watch out for those with a history of quarreling. Look at chapter 18, verse 6. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. We've already seen that that fools love quarreling. And if you have seen someone quarreling in the past, they are likely to continue it in the future. If you have a history of getting drawn into quarrels with this person, it may be best to avoid public confrontation with them. Or maybe even, in some cases, to avoid being alone with them. Because the more opportunity you give a fool to talk the more they will invite you to beat on them. And it will be oh so tempting to dive in and grant them their wish. So watch out for aggressive, quarrelsome words. Also, watch out for pride. Pride. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife but with those who take advice, is wisdom. Now, insolence is a particularly strong form of pride. It's the sort of pride that isn't merely self-centered, but it's self-centered in a way that publicly and aggressively refuses correction, rejects instruction, and tries to cancel those who disagree. Insolence is that which is demonstrated by the scoffer that we looked at last week. So when someone has a track record of attacking people who try to help them by showing them wisdom, you are better off staying away. When you know such a person is likely to pick a fight, just keep your advice and your correction to yourself. That's right. Sometimes you can best avoid strife by keeping your mouth shut and by not offering instruction that might help someone when you know they don't want it. So when your classmates or your coworkers have potty mouths, it is probably wise not to correct them lest they turn to direct their venom at you. It is not wise for Christians to see themselves as the sin police or to take it upon themselves to call people out whenever they do something wrong. No, please save your correction for those who will receive it or for those situations when the innocent are being harmed. Or the naive could be led astray, as I mentioned earlier. You can avoid strife by not offering advice or correction where it is not wanted. This counsel is related to the next verse about a hot temper. Look at chapter 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So please make sure you keep a check on your own temper. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So controlling your own spirit is critical. And it is wise to recognize when others have hot tempers so you can avoid them when possible. The thing about anger is that it always makes us feel right. That's sort of the chemical effect of anger. And we think in the moment that getting more heated will persuade others to agree with us. But in truth, as this verse says, the only thing a hot temper ever accomplishes is to stir up strife. So avoid it in yourself and in others. One last thing to watch out for is backbiting. Backbiting. Chapter 25, verse 23. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue angry looks. That's chapter 25, verse 23. This is related to anger and foolish speech, but a backbiting tongue is an insidious companion. This is what happens when temper and folly go passive-aggressive. So perhaps we don't crank up the volume and start shouting. Instead, we turn down the volume and mutter things under our breath. Or we wait until the conversation is nearly complete, and then we toss out a biting, closing statement like a shot of napalm. Perhaps you get to the end of a tense conversation that resulted in a difficult compromise And those engaged ask one another whether the matter is now settled, and you respond with, it's fine. And your backbiting tone communicates that the situation is anything but fine. But if anyone follows up and dares to ask you what's wrong, you have your defense already locked and loaded. I said, it's fine. Gosh, what's wrong with you people? (laughs) And it's clearly not fine perhaps because you weren't honest enough up front about your full concern within this debate, or perhaps you have lost hold on your self-control when you needed it most. Either way, just as a north wind in the Middle East always brings rain, so now your backbiting tongue brings angry looks, which lead to strife. So in the end, the way of wisdom is to avoid strife whenever possible. Beware of hot tempers, foolish lips, insolent attitudes, and backbiting tongues. This really feels like death, doesn't it? To avoid strife. When the world shouts at us that we're cowards unless we defend our own honor. Yet to fight like a Christian means avoiding the fight whenever possible. But sometimes it's just not possible, is it? There are times when we make costly mistakes that cause strife, and there are other times when strife hunts us down regardless of how hard we try to avoid it. So what do you do then? When strife ambushes us, it is crucial that point two, that we understand the complexity. Understand the complexity. Strife is quite a complex dynamic between people. And a wise person will recognize how complex it is so that they don't attempt immature solutions that only end up making it worse. For example, even though the wise will try to avoid strife whenever possible, they recognize that once it squirts out, You can't try to shove the toothpaste back into the tube and pretend nothing happened. Look at chapter 17 verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Letting out water is the ancient equivalent of toothpaste out of the tube. Water has no shape in and of itself. When the dam breaks, the water gushes and you'll never get those same molecules of water back to where they were. So the wise will understand that sometimes it becomes too late. When the quarrel breaks out, you can't stuff it up and pretend that nothing happened. So if you explode in anger at someone, it's not okay to come back the next day and sweep it under the rug. Yes, it's uncomfortable to talk about. Yes, it's awkward and difficult. No, you don't want to be tempted to explode yet again. But once the dam breaks and the water is out, we now have something we must talk about and reconcile. What led to it? What were you feeling, or excuse me, what were you fearing or believing at the time that caused you to feel so threatened? What did you think would be accomplished by yelling in anger? And what would be a better choice next time? Now, that sort of conversation works only between reasonable people who want to do what is right. What if you couldn't bail in time for a quarrel to erupt with someone who is a fool? Look at chapter 29, verse 9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. You see, this is part of the complexity of strife. The thing, one of the things a wise person will understand is that most fools do not want to resolve strife. They want to rage and laugh. They want only to be right and to be served. And the harder you press on them to back down, to compromise, or to find righteous resolution, the more you will only subject yourself to ongoing rage and ridicule. So there is a time and a place for the wise to not pursue reconciliation with someone who does not want it. When Jesus was on trial before wicked men who had already made up their minds about his guilt, he did not try to reconcile with them. He stood before them as silent as a lamb led to slaughter. Now, of course, he had a mission to die for the sin of the world. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul commands Christians to live at peace with all people as far as it is up to you. So do all you can to serve, to persuade, and to reconcile. But please recognize the intricate complexity of strife with fools. The time is likely to come when the best thing you can do is stop talking and slowly step away. Now, another thing that makes strife complex is how personal it can get. It can get very personal. And because it gets so personal, strife has the effect of hardening people to one another. Strife hardens people. Look at chapter 18, verse 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. This verse talks not about a fool, but about a brother. Someone close to you from your own family, even perhaps from the family of God. Sometimes strife arises from a deep violation of trust and respect. And dealing with strife is therefore quite complex because we cannot expect trust to be restored very quickly. An offended brother is more unyielding than a strong city. Let me give one example. Let's say a person discovers their spouse viewing pornography. This is nothing short of adultery, and it often causes feelings of severe pain and betrayal. The offending spouse may be willing to come clean, to ask for help, to seek counseling. They may even take drastic action to cut the sin out of their life. And so there is a transaction of forgiveness that must take place. But even when forgiveness is requested and granted, there remains a fortified city that must now be won over. Trust is not quickly restored in such cases. It is legitimate for someone to forgive someone for an offense, but also to need more time to see real lasting change before they can let down their walls to trust again. So please don't ignore such complexity. Be wise about recognizing it and allowing for it. And one last thing about the complexity of strife, this is that there is always more than one way to perceive a situation. There's always more than one way. Look at chapter 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Now, perhaps you have a friend who has been deeply hurt or who has been struggling with a certain relationship. It is godly and needful to come alongside that person with a listening ear to ask questions and listen to their pain and their hurt. Ask them what went wrong and how it could be improved. But, The wise person will keep in mind that this person's perspective is not the only possible perspective on the situation. Cross-examination is a basic principle of justice that God built into societies. So while it's one thing to care for a friend by empathizing with what they have experienced... If you are ever called upon to make a judgment about a situation or to help fix it or assist with reconciliation, then it is not wise for you to draw conclusions after hearing only one side of the story. To give a rather straightforward example of this, when a family has more than one child in it, there is bound to be strife among the siblings. And when Aaron and I became parents, we committed ourselves as parents. One of our rules is that we would never bring disciplinary action against a child on account of the accusation of a single embittered sibling. In other words, if you, son, daughter, you come to me and you say, he hit me, that is not sufficient to warrant a judgment of discipline. More evidence is required. And the accused always gets to have just as much of a hearing as the accuser. Now, if there were any other witnesses, that might be enough. If there's video evidence, that helps. Okay. Or if the accused confesses to the crime... All right, we've got the right subject, the right suspect, but a he said, she said is never enough to convict. That goes for parenting, that goes for society's justice system, and that goes for counseling and advising your own friends. Wouldn't the world be such a better place if social media had algorithms built into it to recognize that the first one to label himself or herself a victim seems right until the other comes and examines them. Now, I am not saying that people who claim to be victims are wrong. Okay? That is not what I'm saying. I am only saying that all sides of a situation must be heard And evidence must be taken into account before any sort of objective judgment is drawn. Man, strife is really complex, isn't it? You can't pretend it didn't happen. You can't resolve it with a fool. Trust is hard to restore. And there are always more sides to a story. Part of what it means to fight like a christian is to recognize this complexity but that takes us to our final set of applications once we're in the midst of strife and we've accounted for the complexity of it what does god actually want us to do this is point number three overcome by dying and now that i've introduced my third and final point this morning that we must overcome our enemies by dying, I have some good news for you and some bad news. The bad news is that the more I dug into this question in Proverbs, what does God want us to actually do in the middle of strife? I realized there was way more here than I could cover in the last 10 minutes of my sermon. So there's no way I can do justice to it right now. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. I've changed my plan for next week so that this question of what will a wise person do to overcome their enemies in the midst of strife, that will be the subject of next week's entire sermon. So for today, I will give only a summary. And that summary is found in Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 20. Proverbs 3 reminds us of what we can control Which is only ourselves. Verses 3 and 4 let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So the first thing we must do in the midst of strife is to live in a way that pleases the Lord to speak, and to act with steadfast love and faithfulness, and in so doing, we imitate the God who has shown steadfast love and faithfulness toward us. We can control how we act, and so we ought to act in a manner that pleases the Lord. But Proverbs 20 highlights what to do about the things we can't control. We can control what we do, but there's Things we can't control. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Friends, we live in a fallen world, and that means we can't control how much evil others will commit against us. Sometimes strife and evil will splash on us, it will come for us, it will seek to devour us. And when it does, the man or woman of wisdom, the one who receives the Lord's counsel and matures day by day closer to the Lord, that person will choose not to repay evil. The wise person sees strife as an opportunity to wait for the Lord to deliver us. And I fully understand that this feels like death. It feels like death to wait when I could act. It feels like death to let God deliver me when I can see some ways to deliver myself. It feels like death to lay down my rights when others trample on them. What would ever give me or anyone else the power and the motivation to do such crazy things? I've already mentioned the Lord Jesus who stood silent before his accusers. And when he was hung upon a Roman cross to die the most painful of deaths. Those who came to see him and to assault him, they dared him to prove himself by claiming his rights. Look at Matthew 27, starting at verse 39. They derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. But Jesus stayed where he was. Even to the point where his heavenly father abandoned him. His commitment held him to that cross. His commitment to honor his agreement with the father made before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself. His commitment to experience death so he might pay for the sin of the world. His commitment to endure this shame so he could experience the joy of turning his enemies into his friends. Because that's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 5, that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. While we were his enemies, he reconciled us to God. Friends, you and I were once Enemies of God. Perhaps some of you visiting here today still are enemies of God. We turned our own way. We lived only for ourselves. Jesus did not wait for us to become his friends before making a move toward us to transform us. You see, Jesus shows us that the way to overcome your enemies is to die for them. Some people try to say that every religion teaches the same sort of ethics. This is simply false. Only Christianity gives us a God who became a man and died to overcome his enemies and make them his friends. For the Christian, fighting a holy war is not about slaying the heathen or oppressing our enemies. No, fighting like a Christian means fighting like Jesus. It means laying down our preferences and dying for the good of others. This is the way in which Jesus calls us to walk. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we wait. That doesn't mean becoming punching bags, but it does mean not taking vengeance for ourselves. Only the message about Jesus Christ enables humans to stop being so cruel to one another, to give up their own interests for the sake of others' interests. And we wait for the day when Jesus Christ will return, when he brings final deliverance, when he corrects every wrong and every act of injustice, and those who love him get to live in perfect peace with him and with one another forever. Next week, Lord willing, I plan to return to this topic. I will unpack in further detail what it looks like to overcome our enemies by dying. What we've seen this week is that we cannot overcome by trying to win. We honor God by avoiding the causes of strife whenever possible and by understanding the complexity of strife, refusing simplistic or naive answers to serious human problems. As we do these things, may we become more like our Lord Jesus Christ who overcame his enemies, by dying for them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ who shows us the way to please you, to honor you. He not only shows us, but he walks it on our behalf. Thank you for rescuing us while we were your enemies. Thank you for giving us a way forward to deal with strife with our enemies. Please help us to honor you and to fight like Christians, to fight like Jesus. Please strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.